0: Hello, hello, everybody, and welcome back to Test Tubes and Cauldrons, a podcast where we talk about the science behind spirituality. In this episode, we are going to talk about frequencies and vibrations and look at what that means scientifically, and then also how it applies to spirituality, both in terms of music, meditation, and also crystals. So if you are curious about that, go ahead and join us, and we'll kind of dive right in. But just before we do that, let's do our What Happened on This Day segment. It's currently May 23rd, and on this day in 1825, the electromagnet was exhibited by its inventor, William Sturgeon, in a paper recorded in the Transactions of the Society of Arts. This publication showed pictures of his setup um, and his set of improved apparatus for electromagnetic experiments in the future. So it's actually very fitting given the the topic for this episode and put something funny in our outline. And <laughs> It says content warning. This episode contains math and it does. This episode is going to be a little heavy. Scientifically speaking, um, there's going to be some physics, lots of physics from me, and also some math from fell. So just keep that in mind. I mean, if you have questions, you're welcome to message us comma underneath the YouTube video when it comes out. So first let's talk about vibrations. I hate this word. What is a vibration and how is it defined scientifically? Who wants to start?
1: I'm, I'm going to try not to get too mathematical in this, mostly because I am not a mathematician, but also to try and make it vaguely understandable. But when we talk about vibrations in science, we're generally talking about an oscillation, which is regular variation in magnitude out an equilibrium. So if we think of a sine wave, it goes kind of up and down, I'm aware that I'm in audio format. So please look up a picture of a sine wave. (laughs) And we can see that it um, moves away from its central point in each direction. And it has a predictable magnitude, a predictable pattern. So oscillations, vibrations, they're particularly seen with things like electromagnetic waves. So that includes light and sound. Uh, We're not going to get into the nitty gritty about whether light is a wave or a particle, because I feel we're going to get bogged down in quantum stuff. But yeah, when we understand light as a wave, we know that the frequency of the light that is reflected is what determines the colour. Or, for example, the magnitude and the frequency of a sound wave affects the sound that we hear, because the sound wave is a vibration that um, goes into our eardrums, and our brains interpret this through chemical and electrical signalling. So what do we mean when we say frequency and magnitude of a wave?
0: So in its simplest definition, frequency is basically the number of waves passing a fixed place in a given amount of time. So the formula for this is just one over time, which makes sense. If you divide the number one by a large number like 100, the frequency is one one hundredth, meaning that 100 waves pass through this point per time frequency. So if this is hours you could say that it would be hundred waves per hour are passing through that point or if it was seconds it would be hundred waves per second are passing through that point. Now if it's a hundred waves per second passing through that point that would be considered a high frequency but if the time it takes for one wave to pass a point is like one over two so one wave every two or every half second then it's considered a low vibrations. Essentially there are fewer waves passing through that point at a given or over time. So frequency is measured in a term called hertz, which is the name of the German physicist Henrik Rudolf Hertz. Hertz? Hertz. (laughs) It's hard to say multiple times. A hertz is essentially the number of waves that passes by a point per second, which is the definition of frequency, hence why it is the unit for that. Now magnitude can be thought of as the Like power level, I guess you could say, of those signal frequencies. So the power of a signal is proportional to its magnitude squared. I will say that a common misconception, and I'll get into this a little bit later, about magnitude is that it remains consistent, but that isn't the case. So magnitude is a measured output in response to a particular stimulus, and it decreases over time. It doesn't stay constant. Like think of it when you hit a bell and you hear the ringing, the frequency remains the same, but the magnitude or the power or the you know, how loud that sound is, it decreases over time. So that's a lot of
1: science, but I think the bell example is a really good one. And a guitar string is another one that's quite easy to visualize. So let's say we pluck the guitar string harder. We might see it vibrate more and therefore we get a louder sound. Or alternatively, if we pin our guitar string, can you tell I'm not a musician? (laughs) If we pin our guitar string shorter, then it's going to vibrate more quickly and we're going to get a higher pitched sound. And so there are lots and lots of examples of vibrations we, um light, sound, electrical activity in the brain, um, even vibrations of subatomic particles. But these are all things that are measurable. We know what we're talking about. When we see the term vibration used in a spiritual context, however, it's sometimes a little bit vague. So I just kind of want to explore what do we actually mean by this um, and do they stand up to scrutiny? So basically that there is a historical basis for um the idea of vibration, but it doesn't necessarily pertain to what we think of in the scientific sense. Um, there was this concept, um, philosophical concept from the Stoics called numa, and there's this idea basically that it's something that's present in all creatures and it moves through us like waves, and therefore we might be able to manipulate that by speech, which is uh, sound, which is another vibration. And so it's something that that allows us to manipulate everything around us. There were early understandings of vibrations and these physical rules that ruled kind of everything around us from things like Galileo's research on pendulums, for example. So he he researched a pendulum and he understood that there was a fixed magnitude um, and it was a repeatable pattern. So there, there was some level of understanding that vibrations are inherent to particular systems but this was being applied in a kind of spiritual way this kind of evolved to uh, the importance of the spoken word so the idea of when you speak the word of God you're able to create changes via sound waves and even um, like in the LBRP you're told to like vibrate names in that and I think it's a similar similar idea you're you're vibrating those words and you're enacting changes but again I think, and I think these are two different paradigms are somewhat being conflated so let's maybe explore that a little bit further
2: yeah and I think too when it comes to things vibrating so I'll get into this a little bit later when I talk about early music and Pythagoras because yes this episode is going to involve Pythagoras can't talk about music without talking about him so there is in Pythagorean idea of music he created this idea of harmony of the spheres which was later called musica universalis which just means the same thing this idea that all the planets vibrate at a certain frequency and this vibration is not heard with the ears but felt with the body and this idea that humans specifically but a lot of living things in general would vibrate certain harmonies and your goal was to essentially Align them sort of like you wanted it to be harmonic and not inharmonic so in some ways we see that too in early musicology this idea of harmony of the spheres and they understood to a degree this idea of harmony in a more of a, a, a metaphysical sense but i feel like sometimes some, that some of that is like thrown out the window and it's less about harmony and more about low versus high vibrations which it is not really seen historically.
0: So I want to everything vibrates from plants to stones so on and so forth and nobody disagrees with this scientifically speaking because it's true everything has a vibration. In chemistry we can measure these molecular vibrations using things like infrared spectroscopy or Raman spectroscopy. In fact that's pretty common in a undergraduate chemistry lab to do IR to like show that molecules vibrate and you get to assign like the peaks according to the specific elements. It's all very fascinating. Actually, I hated it. I really didn't like doing IR spectroscopy, but that's beside the point. What we need to clarify, however, is that the periodic motions of atoms and molecules relative to each other is not what people refer to when they're talking about vibrations in a spiritual sense. I think this is where some of that misunderstanding comes in. Um, When you listen to meditations at a specific frequency, this is referring to molecular vibrations, and that has to be stimulated. It's not something that occurs naturally. So that kind of brings me to my next point, which is differentiating forced and free, free vibrations. Now, free vibrations are oscillations where the total energy stays the same over time, Essentially, the magnitude of the frequency remains constant over time. This is really more of a theoretical idea. Realistically, this doesn't actually happen. The magnitude of a signal that, after stimulation, dampens to zero over time. Again, you can back to our guitar string example, the bell example, um, there you have that dampening effect. Now, a forced vibration. A forced vibration is stimulated. It occurs when the object is forced to vibrate at a particular frequency by a specific input of force. Now, objects that do vibrate, and again, we said that all objects do have a natural frequency. um, They have this natural frequency. And when the forced stimulus causes a frequency exactly at the same frequency as the natural one for an object, that's when you observe something called constructive amplification or resonance. So, and that frequency at which it's matching the natural frequency um, is called the resonant frequency. And this is actually, if you've ever seen the videos on like YouTube where you have the wine glasses shattering at a particular frequency, that's what's happening. The frequency that's being being applied, that force, is um, the same as the natural frequency of the glass. And so it causes those to shatter. Like the signal is amplified so much because of the resonance that it causes the glass to shatter. So that's the difference here. Hannah, do you want to touch upon FRET really quickly?
1: Yeah, I I didn't actually research this ahead of the episode, but I'm just vaguely aware that there are some really cool um, examples of this, like of using frequencies and resonance in science. So FRET is fluorescence resonance energy transfer. Um, I promise I can say that normally. (laughs) Um, But basically what you're doing is you're stimulating a fluorescent molecule and you've got a pair of these molecules. So when you stimulate the first of your pair, It is going to emit at a certain frequency and um, you're able to effectively determine the distance between your molecular pair um, due to the uh, energy transfer between them. So it's a really useful um, biomolecular tool to look at structures, for example. So there's all sorts of interesting ways we can use vibrations, but that doesn't necessarily mean that a vibration of a molecule is inherent to us or... Is going to cause some larger mass physical change. It's very much on a on a microscopic level.
0: Yeah, actually, I so I do we do fret a lot in our laboratory, um, and it's really fun. I, yeah, it's a really really cool to do. Essentially, it you, you excite at a, at a particular like wavelength or frequency, it emits, and if the other fluorophore is close enough by, it excites that one and emits a different thing. Um, very very useful in terms of like microscopy. Yeah, so like Kenny mentioned. This this is all happening at a very it's happening at a quantum level really, and so when we talk about like vibrations in crystals, there's a couple things that we need to keep in mind. So first of all, the atoms of a crystal exist within something called a crystal lattice, and that's essentially a collection of molecules that are really tightly packed together in a lattice-like structure. Now between the lattice, obviously things aren't touching at all sides. It's not like a full kind of solid block. Um, There is some spacing. And within this spacing, there are vibrational nodes that are known as a phonon. Now, again, phonons are a quantum mechanical version of a normal vibrational mode. So let me try and break this down a bit. Essentially, what I'm saying here is that a normal vibrational mode is when all parts of the system are moving in a sinusoidal fashion, which is, again, just a sine wave fashion um, with the same frequency. And again, I kind of want to reiterate here that this is not happening on a molecular vibrational level. This is just kind of the natural vibrations of these atoms within the crystal lattice. So when they're in such close proximity, the vibration of one atom affects the vibration of another atom when it's when it's super close to each other. And when I'm talking like close, I'm talking like nanometers or even picometers, like, like really, really small, very, very, very close. And this is not really... An explanation for crystals affecting your energy, which I've heard some people say that like the vibrations of the crystal affect like you because one vibration of one thing affects the vibration of another. At a quantum level, that's true. We're talking about atoms. That is true. At more of a macroscopic level, that's not nearly as accurate because there's so many other things at play. But okay, back to the lattice. So a lattice with harmonious forces between atoms and normal modes of vibrations, these are called lattice waves. And this is kind of when you get like a singular frequency between a whole bunch of atoms kind of all at the same time, like through a particular lattice. And this can happen with crystals that are very, very densely packed. However, at really high frequencies, when the wavelengths or that frequency itself is so short, then you don't actually have enough oscillations for it to like reach the next atom and so it won't have an influence. So at really high frequencies, this whole idea of a lattice wave is actually less applicable. And this is also something interesting that is a debate topic within the witchcraft community, um, which is whether synthetic crystals are the same or can be thought of this as the same or used similarly to natural crystals. And the answer to that is no. Um, and the reason why is because Technically if you think about it on a macroscopic level, yes you can use them the same way. However, at a mic at a like a quantum or a microscopic level, if you want those crystals to act exactly the same, you have to have everything replicated exactly exactly the number of nitrogens, exactly the number of oxygens, exactly the number of whatever other you know, elements are a part of this crystal. Um, the way that they're organized in the crystal lattice must also be exact. The frequencies at which these are vibrating must also be exact. If there's any like impurity within the natural crystal, that has to also be replicated because that will affect the vibrations of the atoms themselves. And so because of the intricacies of the synthetic design, it's really not possible to synthetically create a crystal that is identical and will have the same vibratory properties as a natural crystal. That's just not like possible on a microscopic level. So if you want to get really technical about it, the answer is is yes, they are different and no, they cannot be used the exact same way. However, If you want to use them the same way, like macroscopically, in terms of like how they look and how they feel and all of those kind of things, then yeah, you could essentially say that they're the same. I'm curious, actually, what are your all's thoughts on synthetic crystals versus natural crystals? I honestly
2: don't have that strong of opinions because I don't really use crystals in my practice. Literally, the only thing I really use is sea quartz because I can get it from a beach. (laughs) yeah so I I have honestly like never really engaged with crystals in in that way it's it's it just seems kind of all of all of it just seems kind of weird
0: it's I I really struggle because like they again they make it out to be this like larger molecular vibration thing but that requires some kind of stimulus like no crystal just has like Molecular vibrations all of the time like all of the time. Um, and so when people are talking about like, oh, I'm holding a crystal in my hand and it's like transferring from the crystal to me, and you know, no, that's not really how that works. I actually I was doing when I was doing research for this episode, um, I came across an article and it said that um let me, let me just see if I can remember exactly what it said. There's like Chris like humans, we as humans have very unstable energy. Um, because of all the things that were influenced by like you know traffic and um, <laughs> just like everyday every like day to day things and it was like crystals have really stable energy because like they're solid and because of the crystal lattice and so like their energy is like super super stable and I was like well first of all crystals can't like store energy so that doesn't really make sense in and of itself and so that's why crystals are so good at healing things like your chakras right because like your energy is really unstable and the crystal's energy is, is really, really stable. And so like balances each other out. And I was just sitting there like, I don't, I'm sorry. Come again. (laughs) It's just like, it's woefully scientifically inaccurate. And even when it comes to like humans, when it talks like our energy being unstable, what does that mean? Because this is also something that we talked about in a different episode. And Hanny, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this and fell you have thoughts too. But like, the human body is not made up of a single atom. Like, we we are made up of cells, which are made up of thousands of atoms that make up the proteins and the other small molecules within us. But, like, the crystals are made up... There's some impurities, fine. Yeah, sure, I get that. But, like, generally, they're made up of a collection of atoms, and then it's just, like, these repeated units throughout. So it's the same thing, essentially, multiple times. And so the the, like... That's going to vibrate much differently than we are because we're composed of like literally thousands of molecules and it's not in this like repeated structure that has the required like rigidity and closeness to actually cause these like vibratory phenomena.
1: Yeah, I, I gotta say, like, I think crystals are really cool. I don't use them really for my practice, but I think they're they're interesting um, from a scientific perspective. But they're interesting, like, physically. Um, you think of things like labradorite, for example. So that has um, all these like sheaths of. I'm really not explaining this very well, but it basically has so many very very small layers that it refracts light in a really interesting way. So you can hold it up to the light, and you can see different patterns appear, um, and that I mean that's that's a really cool thing to look at, and I can see why people. Would ascribe metaphysical properties to these some people have discussed um, like drawing spirits into crystals for example and um, that's not something i have experience with but i can see i can see it i can see also like color correspondences which in a more abstract way i guess is a vibration of sorts but i think the sticking point for me is where somebody says oh this crystal is healing or xyz because of its inherent vibration and that is something that you can't really scientifically verify. So that's my, my issue. Also ice is a crystal and nobody, I haven't seen anybody work with, with ice. <laughs> Let me know if you have, but I, I, mean, I just think it's interesting that we sort of place these arbitrary bounds on kind of natural, versus unnatural. Um, and it doesn't really seem to be very grounded in any sort of theory.
0: Well, it's interesting because most natural things can be crystallized. Pretty much any element, any pure element can be crystallized in some form. Bismuth, if you've actually ever you can grow your own like bismuth crystals. And those are really fun because they have all the pretty like holographic colorings from the um, oxide layer that forms on the surface. I've done that so many times. (laughs) But and like even like salt crystals, like those are technically a crystal, like they form a lot of structure just as much as like your quartz or your amethyst would, But people don't think of like sand sort of has a crystalline structure in a way, a little bit. And there are so many other examples of that where the, anything can really form a crystalline structure, but people don't utilize those crystals in the same way as they do like the larger crystals, like quartz and whatever. And I think that's interesting because it, they're equally as valid. Um, I might argue a little bit more so. <laughs> but yeah, Fel, what do you think?
2: I just feel I just feel like there are so many, there's so much more interesting things to crystals than their vibrations and there's so many more interesting uses of vibrations than crystals. Like I said, I'm going to get into music theory a little bit later on, which I think is a cool, applicable application of vibrations. But crystals, I don't think, are one of them. And, you know, like Henry was saying, like, how certain crystals, like, you hold them up to the light. Like, I have cut glass uh, hanging on my window, and so every time the sun shines through it, you know, it turns into a rainbow. And, like, that's cool. (laughs) But I don't think the agate that I have over there is going to vibrate, is going to heal my third eye or something. Um, <laughs> yeah, because that's just it's one of those misapplications of science where I think it's like it's fine to have a metaphysical and spiritual belief about something like crystals. But it's a different story when you try to scientifically prove it.
0: You can't you can't prove it scientifically I'm sorry like I'm just gonna come out and say it like you can't you can't prove it scientifically you just can't because it's not a thing and it's fine if you want to believe in it that's okay I guess you can believe what you want but don't don't pretend like it's scientifically sound because it's not like this is one of those things that people pick and choose a science for and it's like you can't do that you gotta take it all I agree yeah with what you said felt like there are so many other applications of crystals even if you don't focus on the on the vibrational aspect of it, but like focus on crystal formation, right? Like they they form under significant pressure and over time, and maybe that's what you want to embody within the crystal, like this durability or this transformation into something beautiful after you know the pressures of life are applied. Like there's many other applications I think that crystals can bring outside of this like quantum vibratory property which on a macroscopic level it doesn't do anything. Yeah. Does anybody else have any like other thoughts on maybe how you could apply crystals to a practice outside of the whole idea of healing?
2: <laughs> I mean, I mostly use them as a offerings or b just like a part of an altar space as like decoration and Sometimes I'll use them, like, if I have a travel altar, because I'm traveling, I'll usually have, like, a crystal in there of some kind, just because I'm not going to bring a whole-ass statue. (laughs) Uh, And I find it useful. Mostly, honestly, what I I don't really even use crystals. I I mostly just use rocks that I find at a location, because I think, to me, the place that the rock was is more important than what the rock is,
0: if that makes sense. Which brings us into another thing, which is um, like ethical crystal buying, right? So keep in mind that I, I don't necessarily buy into the idea that like if it's mined incorrectly, the crystal is going to like absorb that bad energy and like have an effect and all of that. However, I do think that like economically speaking, if we support the businesses that like in like unethically the crystals, then you're not doing like, you're just harming the earth further. You're also harming the industry further. You're harming those people who are selling ethically, you know, obtained crystals. And so if you do want to buy a crystal, do make sure that you're doing it ethically. Make like ask your, ask the seller who their providers are. Um, if they're ethically, you know, getting their crystals from somewhere, they should be happy to provide you that information. If they aren't willing really to tell you that you should hopefully send up a red flag, maybe suggest that you should go. You should go elsewhere and find your crystals.
1: I just wanted to ask, have you guys had experiences with these binaural beats? I, I want any yes. of you, you uh,
0: please tell yes. me
2: about your experience. With OK, this. so there's a few things I want to say. Binaural sound is a real thing. Binaural sound is basically, uh, oftentimes you'll see these really funny microphones, which are just styrofoam heads with microphones at either ear. And the idea is, and it's not an idea, like it just works. Binaural sound is, so like if I were to take a walk with that, it would sound how it would sound if I was in that 3D space. So it's creating 3D sound. So there is like definitely like, that. that is just audio engineering. I have created binaural sounds and um, I've listened to binaural sounds. It's like, it's a it's a real thing. And it's very, very cool and also very creepy because if you do it right, you can make it sound like a door upstairs is slamming just because of the way that the sound is. But that has to do with like recording. Binaural beats, in my opinion, are nothing.
1: Have you encountered them in a spiritual context? Like what kind of claims I have. do you so, guys see being made? So
2: like I... I find binaural beats are actually helpful to get into a meditative state. I don't think they do anything. They're not going to heal you. They'll be like 465 hertz. And I'm like, that does it. What are you talking about? <laughs> it's not out free- Okay. And they like claim that certain hertz like affect your brain or like you say, like get into alpha. Here's alpha beats. And it's just like one tone. And it's supposed to, like, unlock a higher potential. Now, I have gone in New York City when I lived there. I took a sound class. And my teacher actually sent me to, there's, like, a sound, it's called, like, a sound den, where they play a single tone note. Or oftentimes, it's, like, several harmonies over each other. And it was a very, very cool experience. And it definitely does, like, mess with your brain and gets you into a trance meditative, like, state. However, I don't think it's actually doing anything outside of that. Like it's not like uh, like sound healing is a whole thing, but I'm not sure if it works on humans. It's interesting, there actually is evidence to suggest that a cat purrs, the reason cats purr when they're hurt is that the vibration of the purr actually stimulates healing within them. So they they've done some I'll have to see if I can find the studies that they did on this. But that's an interesting point of note that they have seen this happen in cats, but it doesn't the like information was very inconclusive when it came to sound healing in humans. So I have had experience with binaural beats. I actually think they're a lot of fun, but I think a lot of the claims about them are just (laughs) like you look at the comments of them and they're just like i saw god i'm like okay definitely useful like definitely gets into your brain to like they use this in some type of neurofeedback it's actually like part of certain types of mental health treatment but it's not like it's actually it's more about like calming the chatter of your brain than it is like actually doing something if that makes
0: any sense I actually read a paper recently, and they used the solfeggio frequency like scale, and they used it at forty hertz to treat fibromyalgia patients and see if it had any effect on their range of motion. And what they found— granted, the study was rather small; it was only like I think nineteen females, and they didn't have a control group. But it was—they—they said it was an open-ended investigation, just kind of like for shits and giggles type of deal. Um, But what they found was actually that after exposing the um, participants to this 40 hertz frequency for I think it was 23 minutes, they did see an increase in the range of motion um, and that all of the kind of the scales that they, you know, had the participants participate in or the surveys that they gave them, they rated their range of motion, how they were feeling all better after this treatment than they did beforehand. So there is some, I think, legitimacy to it. I just think that when people say it's like actually healing, that's when it gets taken too far. We don't have evidence of it actually healing anything. We do have evidence of it is perhaps maybe the ability to influence your mind to its a state where you're not so focused on the pain or something is happening there to like distract you and allow you to have like a better range of motion or make you feel better, however that might work. Um, again, kind of just throwing in there that we don't really know anything about the brain. So when it comes to like neurological reasons for things, we don't really understand what's going on, but.
2: Right. Like I, I've, I use, um, I have an app for, I forget what it's called. It's like, they don't call it, when people say binaural beats, I'm like, that's not binaural sound, but whatever, <laughs> go off, I guess. Um, I use like, listen to certain types of frequencies or like the way that the harmonies hit if I have like a massive migraine, cause I do find that it helps me. However, that is anecdotal. <laughs> and a lot of that could be like, yeah, like you said, we don't know like anything about the brain. Like the brain is like this wild, ironically, <laughs> the brain is the thing that our brain struggles to comprehend. So there definitely is something to that, but it's hard to say what is causing the shift and what is causing people to like, feel better. But I don't think like it's not like your body is hearing the tone and is somehow like healing itself. I don't think that's how that works. I think it's more of a neurological
1: thing. Yeah. And I got to say, like the fibromyalgia, I haven't read the study myself, but if there's no control group, that could simply be somebody, you know, sitting down for 23 minutes and being cared for and, you know, feeling the physiological relief, like psychosomatic response is real but we can't differentiate whether that is physiological um, due to the sound or whether it is physiological due to the kind of sensation of relief if we don't have a control group. So I think, oh, that kind absolutely. Of evidence is, like, <laughs> is just, it
0: just, it makes me. Um, when I read that this, I didn't have a control. I was like, well, <laughs> that gives it significantly less legitimacy in my mind. Um, but I still, I did think it was interesting um, that they saw a pretty significant change. Now what that's from, we can't definitively say, mm-hmm. but yeah, absolutely. When I thought there was no control group, I was like, damn, <laughs> there goes my little bit of evidence for this episode.
1: Um, so let's go thinking. back to the beginning and maybe we can add this at the beginning of this segment, but basically what a binaural beat is, and Fell kind of alluded to it, but it's an auditory illusion. So when you have two frequencies that are played on the other side of your head, it your brain somehow, and I'm not entirely sure as to the mechanism, but it generates the sensation of a beat within your brain. So this is kind of why I was asking about experiences of this, because I've never actually heard this. And it, the idea of it freaks me out a little bit. Um, but it is a, yeah, it's a real illusion that can happen within your head. Um, but as you guys have alluded to, um, it does, there are studies on it. And there don't seem to be very many special properties when it comes to affecting, say, mood or um, psychic ability some some, some claim. Um, for example there's an analysis I found that compared 22 studies and it did suggest a modest effect but the ones that were showing you the higher effect were well, those that control group and we know that for example listening to music has a huge effect on our mood that could easily very easily be simply the act of sitting down and listening to music and feeling more relaxed and that um, is following on. So the The actual theory behind why binaural beats work, quote, work, is they work via brainwave entrainment. So this idea, uh, basically your neurons are firing all all the time, and it's a chemical um, neurotransmitter, which then leads to an electrical signal along your synapses. And when you're doing brainwave entrainment, an external stimulus is causing your neurons to fire synchronously at the same frequency um, in response to the stimulus. So um, we know that certain brain waves or oscillations of this electrical stimulus are associated with certain states. Um, Phil mentioned like alpha waves and theta waves and things, and some are associated with sleep and some are more, more with alertness and such. We know this does happen with some auditory stimuli, but how meaningful this is, is actually really hard to assess because, for example, some meditations will say, these stimulate theta waves and theta waves are seen more in children. Therefore... You can access your inner child. (laughs) And that's a huge leap because even if this is true, is this happening in the whole brain? Is it happening for the duration of the meditation or for longer? Which neurons is it happening on? Are theta waves the same in in a child's brain versus in an adult's brain? It's a massive, massive methodological leap to say, okay, these binaural beats, assuming they do cause brainwave entrainment, which I don't think there is a massive amount of evidence for, they are going to induce really complex changes um so yeah th- th- therein lies my uh issue with these uh, meditations
0: I think that's a common issue we see with this idea of like frequency and vibration and kind of all of its forms and spirituality there's so many like really really big leaps from like a to v <laughs> it's like where, where's all of the in-between evidence to kind of like gradually grow a base of supporting data that like lets you make the comparison between a and a and b and it's it's the same issue we have like you you can kind of compare it to when we talk about the development of like pharmaceuticals how we have things and yes it can work in cells but that doesn't mean it's going to work in animals it works in animals that doesn't mean it's going to work in humans it's the same kind of thing okay it might work in this particular instance But that doesn't mean you can directly correlate it to it working in this particular instance. Like you have, there has to be individual studies done to show that, yes, it works here. And yes, it works here. And if they don't, like you cannot just assume correlation without cause like without cause in any kind of data. And that happens a lot within kind of this discussion within spirituality. And it's really frustrating, at least for me to see. Bill, do you have any thoughts on that?
2: I mean, I I always have a lot of thoughts on these. I mean, I will say, like, I think I think binaural beats are fun. Like, I do use binaural beats, like in my <laughs> practice, because I find it a nice way to get meditate meditative. But I don't know if they have any legitimacy. But they're definitely like I enjoy sound. Sound is a huge part of my practice. Um, I mean, I do music, and I've done like audio engineering, and I think they're fun. Or like binaural walks through woods where they like use a head to like record. It's always funny to watch people record binaural beats or binaural sound, I should say. Um, those are really fun because it like really tricks your brain into thinking that you're there. Those are fun, I will say.
0: Yeah, I think in terms of like getting you into kind of a mood or like into a, into a trance like state, they, they think that's like there's some legitimacy in that even just from personal experience. I haven't done it with the binaural beats, but like. When I meditate, I typically put on a very specific sound. Actually, I think a few times they have been many always, but I don't know if it was like legitimate or not. And it does get you in a particular kind of mood like for a working. I use music a lot in my practice to kind of get me in that mood, especially when I'm working with like the planets. And um, if I'm working with a particular one, there are specific playlists that I have dedicated to them. And so listening to that music will kind of elicit the desired mood i guess you could say um for what i want and i utilize it a lot in that way and actually when it comes to planetary magic there are certain scales that are associated with every single planet and you can play those on repeat and it'll kind of just like it it is very gets you in a very trance like state i also do that pretty frequently as well um typically just during like morning meditations but yeah like There's nothing wrong with using these kind of things to help kind of get you in the mood or get you into a trance state. The issue is when people cite there to be scientific evidence suggesting that these things have any kind of like healing or transformative properties, which just isn't, isn't true. Hanny, I need to know this whole DNA thing, DNA man thing is, you got to (laughs) explain.
1: I've got to, I'm going to read you guys a quote um, before we get onto the beauty and actual useful applications of vibrations. I, I, I want to know what your thoughts are on this quote. Um, And I saw this on an Instagram post, which is probably why it's questionable. The primary function of DNA is to relay wave particles of light and sound, brackets, photons and phonons, close brackets, through the organism. Our words can bring life or death. DNA is the seat of spiritual energy, the antenna
0: to Yahweh. What are your thoughts
1: on that quote?
0: Can we just pretend that you didn't read that and that it was never posted on Instagram? that's um that's rough yeah i have that that's a little bs in my opinion
1: where is dna getting light from is my question it's <laughs> it's deep within your body
0: well but like dna and if we but if we think about it too like when dna is exposed to uv rays it is damaged like that's how that's how cancer becomes a thing like that's literally how skin cancer develops it's because uv rays are like Hitting your DNA and cells and like really screwing the things. So that doesn't even make any sense. Like, that's not what happens when light hits your DNA anyway. Like, that's grossly scientifically inaccurate. Phil, do you have thoughts? <laughs>
2: uh, none of them are good. <laughs> no, yeah, I, mean, I don't really have anything to add. Most of it is just like people like to slap a bunch of like words onto like spiritual things that make no sense. And you're like, okay. Or try to like just. You don't need to scientifically prove. Like, I feel like people get it more into hot water when they try to like scientifically prove things like crystal healing, etc. I'm like, Ugh. just go see a doctor and maybe throw crystals at yourself every so often. <laughs> Instead of trying to prove that it like works.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. I just put it up because I thought it was an example of how people kind of use these words in ways they were never originally intended to mean. So DNA is, if you don't know, well, I think most people do, it's in every cell of our bodies, it's in every living organism, I guess guess apart from RNA viruses, but that's another discussion. Um, And its purpose is to generate RNA, which makes proteins, which is what our, uh, it's like a molecular machinery of our body. There's nothing there really to do with relaying photons or phonons. That's not its purpose whatsoever. But um, when we transplant scientific language into the common parlance, the specific meanings are lost sometimes, and they they take on new meanings. I don't think that's always negative. So people use energy in a kind of allegorical way sometimes, and I think that's a useful analogy for some people, but please don't use DNA in that way. That's not That's not what that means, and I don't personally think it adds anything to a spiritual explanation.
2: Okay, so now that we've discussed some of the ways that vibration and frequency is misapplied um in the occult space let's talk about some ways that it has historically been applied and i think is a very uh like underutilized place for it to be applied so i am an early musician i don't remember if i brought it up on the podcast i just I, i talk so much all the time it's hard for me to keep track of where i say things but i'm an early musician which means that i play music prior to the baroque period so the 17th century usually late medieval into the elizabethan is primarily where my music goes but early music also like counts as ancient music as well and what's something that's very interesting to note is that music's origin is like entirely spiritual <laughs> the reason why we have our notes the way that they are is entirely spiritual so a lot of that dates back to Pythagoras, and who's most known for his Pythagorean theorem. But Pythagoras is also the creator of the seven-note scale. Our scale, yeah, so that would be like C, B, D, E, F, G, A, B, and then again, conclude at C. Yeah, so we look at our, our scale as eight notes, but it's really only like seven notes because the last note is repeated. Basically, Pythagoras came up with his seven-note scale based on the seven-note lyre, which is basically a harp-like instrument. And he did this in combination with, like, math as well as spirituality. I mean, to him, he viewed them as the same thing. He viewed math as the means to, to figuring out the key to the universe. So he envisioned the universe as a big lyre. So each planet would vibrate quote unquote at a specific pitch and you know the strings of a lyre literally vibrate that's very easy to see so that way by harmonizing these notes it would therefore then harmonize with heavenly bodies to create music of the spheres musica universalis so in western music that is why we have our scale is because they are harmonized to planets um, which i think is very very cool
0: it's a really beautiful explanation of, like, the microcosm and macrocosm, oh, yeah. which is literally what we oh, I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah literally,
2: if you look under the Musica Universalis page, it'll be like, see, also, microcosm, macrocosm. Like, it literally says that on the, on the wiki page. Um, so that is one of the ways that, you know, music is is seen as spiritual. And then things get a lot more layered once you start combining notes. And another thing that's interesting too about Pythagoras is they would use uh, music for purification of the soul. And I think Plato said something about like music comes in the ear, goes to the heart, and then feeds the soul. So there's very much this idea of specific sounds on the lyre as healing to the soul. And like if you look at ancient Greek music, a lot of it is like certain modes are dedicated to certain deities or certain entities and that is supposed to be pleasing to them so how did those like moved out of the ancient greek sphere and into the medieval sphere and the renaissance and beyond once there was christianization came into play it was no longer about like the gods tm or even about the planets so much although there was some there was still some overlap between astronomy and music at the time Uh, music of the spheres was like a specific thing that was taught i think it's in quavidium if I remember if that's what the term is, or it's like math, kind of like their STEM, <laughs> like their curriculum in, in education, they would still teach Harmony of the Spheres. The later uh, philosophers, like in the medieval and renaissance period, uh, music of the spheres <clears throat> was not just like musical notes in a scale. It was also this idea that the universes and planets are constantly sending out a sound a vibration that we can't hear with our, our ears, but we can feel and we can like hear with our souls. So that was uh, another reason why harmony was so important. And very much like Esther was saying, like macrocosm microcosm, like the music is the microcosm for the macrocosm of the harmony of the spheres that we cannot hear. Things get real crazy. once <laughs> get to the, the medieval and Renaissance where someone who names Boethius believed that the human music could reveal the order of cosmic music that reflects the beauty of God, the creator. And there was also this idea that the human voice, specifically because it was a gift from God, the human voice was therefore the holiest instrument. And then every single instrument that was created after that was made to be created like the human voice. So the closer the instrument sounded to the human voice, the holier the instrument was. So that's why um, in early music, you know, you have your instruments are only made in the scale that the human voice can sing. So humans have sopranos. Generally, there's four voices, soprano, alto, tenor and bass. And this changes, you know, depending on gender, et cetera. But those are generally what is soprano, alto, tenor, bass. And so then you have instruments where you have tenor recorder, soprano recorder, alto recorder, bass recorder, et cetera, et cetera. So you pretty much only had instruments that were made to be in that way because it's like, well, the the human voice is the holiest of all. And for many years in the Middle Ages, there was no instrumentation allowed because instrumentation was considered a perversion of the human voice. And in the early Middle Ages, they sort of stripped away idea of chords and harmony and we're focusing just on singing a single note like if you listen to gregorian chants they're generally a chant one note at a specifically chosen note and you would sing the whole line that way and then finally they added some range again very much the notes would depend on what you wanted to express and then they finally allowed polyphony
1: So would these notes pertain to specific mystical things, or would it just be a kind of devotional act?
2: They often wrote, actually not often, they always wrote their music in different modes. Most people nowadays don't really know these modes, but the modes are Ionic, Dorian, Phrygian, uh, Lydian, Mixolydian, and Locrian. So Dorian would be, are you going to Scarborough Fair? And, oh, I forgot Aeolian. Then there's Aeolian, which is, I wonder as I wander out under the sky. So it's a little more minor key, those two. Ionian would, I think, be like, yesu joy of man's desiring. So major key. Mixolydian. Mixolydian is the one um I'm having a hard time remembering a song in Mixolydian. There's a lot of songs in that one though. It's probably Dorian and Mixolydian are the two most popular. I believe there's an Adele song that's in the Mixolydian mode. But it's the it's like the major key that like makes you feel hopeful. <laughs> and you're like, "Oh, like if you ever hear music that really tugs at your heart, it's usually in a Mixolydian key because it's like major, but it's also like oh my god like wow like hope is real so it's it's uplifting um locrian is theoretical because there's no songs that are written in locrian Uh, well there is one by bjork there's one by bjork but that's because bjork is (laughs) bjork and wanted to write a crazy song and then phrygian is a lot of what ancient greek songs are that very like minor key that's usually the phrygian mode and Lydian is the other one. Lydian we also don't see a lot in modern music. We hear that more in sacred music. That one's like another hopeful tone. But the main ones we see are Aeolian, Ionian, Mixolydian, and Dorian are the ones we hear modern modern days. But each of those modes were associated with different planets. I posted a picture in our outline, and I might have uh, asked to share the link to the to the image because I think it's a lot of fun. So it actually associates each of the modes, which each of the muses and also like strings of a lyre, and then also the planets. So each mode not only had planetary associations, but it also had feeling associated with it. Dorian, some people considered serious, which I would agree with. Some people considered, uh, interestingly enough, the Greeks considered Dorian to be a very happy mode, which is amusing because you think of Scarborough Fair and it doesn't sound very happy to us, that's because we've developed the association of it being more serious.
1: So that was something I was going to ask as well. And maybe you don't know. Um, so I apologize, it's a difficult question. But you mentioned that this is kind of Western music. Mm-hmm. Um, in other music systems, do we have these same kind of associations between different modes or are the systems just completely different?
2: That's a hard Question: I would say each musical system is like extremely diverse. I mean, certain cultures you have semitones, which are not like their semitone is also an early music tone to be like this is a half step up. But there's also like tones that exist in between other tones, and this can be heard in some. I can also have uh, post a link to this of there's someone did a beautiful recreation. I think MIT did it actually of a one of the oldest pieces of music that they've ever found. And it has like tones that we don't, that don't exist in our modern scale our modern Western scale. So, you know, there's definitely like, there are notes and tones and frequencies that don't exist in Western music just because of the history of it. And they have their own like religious connotation, but yeah, music and sound has like an extremely deep, uh, mysticism behind it like even in the renaissance they believed that certain chords could open a gate to hell like i remember i was playing because I, I played an ensemble and i accidentally played the wrong note and my teacher afterwards jokingly said to me she's like if you played that note back then even on accident they would have you know like uh, you you would have been done for because that was a been witch the chord. <laughs> yeah yeah it was basically like that's the chord that opens the gate to hell and even to play it accidentally was like taboo Um, which is funny because it didn't even sound like particularly horrendous it was just like their associations with the the notes
1: yeah it's really cool because I think there is some uh, what what you mentioned about the mysticism of it and Mm -hmm. the idea of these kind of vibrations causing changes that. not necessarily in a, in a physical way, but a sort of um, music of the planets or music of God, it kind of applies to incantations and um, magic words, for example, that people trying to find specific words which would pertain to a particular vibration or that would be able to affect change and distill that into a single sound. So I think those are right. really, really interesting applications. And I, I love this early music stuff. It's just... That's yeah. so underappreciated when it comes I to I mean vibration. yeah, like
2: there's um like Gregorian chants, there's a word a melismatic music sung on a single syllable. And it was meant to induce trance not only in the singer but also in the listener. And this is mo like most cultures have a form of like chanting in a in a note, in a sound that's beyond just talking. Um, and what I think is also interesting, the the Renaissance and medieval period were like obsessed with um, acronyms. So there's one that I actually learned when researching for this or an acrostic I, is what I meant. Um, Aero Cross E-R-O space C-R-A-S, which means tomorrow I will be there. And actually, one of our most popular songs that you might recognize, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is a part of that acrostic. And it was a part of a series of of songs that would be sung to and you know, on the microcosm create this idea of like i will be there tomorrow and so okomokomi manuel is actually it's one of the oldest surviving complete pieces of of mute like antiphonic music and it's a part of this mystical experience of like tomorrow i will be there so i think it's cool how a lot of it survives today <laughs> and like of course not all music is like holy like there was secular music we don't really have any surviving until the elizabethan period because it was outlawed to be written down and in many cases to even be performed and then elizabeth was like screw all sacred music (laughs)
1: except for that in english um sorry why did she um say this do you know is it um, well
2: because most sacred music was catholic that's basically what. Yeah, uh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that would be the reason why. <laughs> Ironically, her favorite composer, John Dowland, was Catholic. And I think his only saving grace was the fact that he was like an amazing composer. He tried so hard to be her court bard, and she just kept denying him. <laughs> but anyway, so there was like secular music. But I, what I think was really cool about learning about the music of the spheres is like even secular music becomes holy in a way because we're at least... In a Western musical system, we're using that seven note scale, and all of those notes were purposely designed and mathematically created to be a certain frequency and a certain ratio back to the lyre and back to uh, Pythagoras, which I just think think is very, very cool. I could probably do, I could talk endlessly about frequencies and how, like, most of our modern music is not in tune, but that's. Side note.
0: <laughs> I remember when you posted um <laughs> some of the history of like music and how it dated back to like I knew music came from Pythagoras, but I didn't really understand, I think, the extent to which we we owe most of our modern, like Western music to him. And I recall learning, like I read a couple of the links that you sent, and I was just like, wow, I had like, I honestly had no idea. I mean, like, I'm somebody who studied music since I was I was really young. Like I played played piano for years. And it was just it it definitely gave me a very new perspective, especially attributing to like the mystic, just the mystic side of it. I had never considered music to be like, I mean, spiritual in the sense of yes, it's used religiously, but I thought that was just like a thing that they did to evoke a feeling and emotion. Um, right. I didn't really know that it had like legitimacy <laughs> behind that idea and it was really cool to find that out and i definitely think it gave me kind of a new option for its use within even my personal practice
2: right and especially like if you work with the planets i think like music of the spheres is like a very yeah a yeah, very helpful yeah yeah i definitely will will share that image as a as a link uh, yeah. it's in like latinish writing but you can make out what like mode they're saying and then you can make out the planetary symbols on the side I just think there's there's so much there that I I I have barely seen like I've seen people talk about music and spirituality, but not in um, the, the theory sense of it, more in the like music as a way to evoke a certain emotion as opposed to like music as the microcosm. So I think that's very cool. Like the more I learn about early music, just the cooler it is. It's so like like everything they did was purposeful. Every harmony every chord had a reason especially in sacred music like it had it had a purpose for being there and like if you listen to early music I know like listening to it sometimes like just like on your headphones it's not the same but like going to an early music concert I don't cry really ever (laughs) but i don't cry when i listen to music but i have cried listening to early music just because of like going to a concert just because of the way that the frequencies are literally hitting against each other and like that was so purposeful they knew so much about like vibrations and frequencies and how to put these together to evoke a certain feeling especially when done like in a cathedral or done in a certain acoustic space they like knew how, how to evoke these things and how to have them play against each other to really create this experience. So that's me just trying to convert everyone to to listen to it. So music.
0: I actually, when it comes to speaking of like experiences within cathedrals and stuff, when I was in high school, um, we sang the song, Even When God Is Silent. I was in choir in high school. And we sang the song, Even When God Is Silent in a, in a cathedral. And if you, that that song is one of the very, it's one of the few that like truly makes me very emotional and seeing that song at the, the cathedral there has never been a more spiritual experience like it was so intense like at the time I was actually Christian so I took it a very different way but like I've gone back and listened to the recording that I have of that and it is it is um beyond anything like it still gives me goosebumps and I I adore listening to it and that's definitely like an older kind of piece of music based on like like sacred like music development and it's just it's it's beautiful so definitely it's the that kind of music and like a cathedral or a space where the sound can really just exist as it dampens over time. um there's there's truly nothing like it
2: they they knew what they were about. like I'm not even like I'm not into Christian mysticism at all, but like, wow, these songs, like they there's nothing else to say but like wow I'll, d- I'll i'll probably have in the description some songs that have like really hammered home this idea just like how purposeful every single note in every single instrument is um i'll share some of those because i think they're just so they're just so beautiful and they are something too that helps me when i'm like do like in my practice i'll sing them i walk around the house singing early music
0: I think it just reiterates the importance of of doing things with like true intention, right? Not not like we we speak about intention kind of flippantly nowadays within the community, but truly, like when your desire is to incorporate correspondences in order to like maximize the kind of relationship between the microcosm and the macrocosm, doing everything with such intention, like they did in the development of these musical pieces. That's the kind of like that is some serious dedication. And I think it would be really inspiring to see kind of what happened if we returned to that of the idea of doing everything with such detail to your intent. Um and how that can evoke such so like a very strong spiritual response.
1: I um auditioned for choir three times and failed all three, so I don't have anything to add.
0: Oh, no. to this discussion. <laughs> I'm sure your voice sounds beautiful. Why don't you sing for us here?
1: Um, So my mom is actually deaf or she's like partial hearing. Even she told me that I'm not a good
0: singer. (laughs) Ouch. All right, cool. Well, if we don't have anything else, then let's just call it. Thank you so much for listening. This was a very interesting episode, a mix of really scientific at the beginning and also really spiritual at the end. But that's the best, the best episodes. So we hope you enjoyed. And if you did, feel free to um, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out um, if you're willing to do so. But yeah, tune in next week for a new episode, and we'll see you then. Bye, guys.